The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to fapc.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. So let us listen now for God's word as it echoes to us from 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm grateful to God whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of, of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother, Lois, and, and your mother, Eunice, and, and now, I'm sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. This is the word of God. For you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. At the church I served in Atlanta, one of my colleagues would stop members of the youth group and the confirmation class in the hallways and aggressively fire a question at them. Who are you? The response he was hoping to hear, the, the response that these young souls had learned from the Presbyterian study catechism was, I am a child of God. Werner Ramirez does something very similar in the halls of this church. Who are you? I'm a child of God. Today, inspired by these ministerial tactics, I'm going to invite all of you to say the affirmation of faith printed in bulletins and appearing on screens multiple times, specifically at the conclusion of five separate bite-sized sermons. Yes, there are five mini-sermons today, lucky you. <laughs> At each juncture, I'm going to ask that you indulge me by saying the catechism. Don't worry, <clears throat> you don't have to stand up for each repetition, just for the last one. Okay, grab your bulletin, let's practice. Who are you? What does it mean to be a child of God? Well done. Oh, and by the way, 
that concludes mini-sermon number one. Not bad, right? We're, we're clicking along. Mini-sermon number two focuses on today's bulletin cover. I like Rembrandt. It has to do, I think, with the way he covers canvases in dark pigments and then coaxes careworn faces from the painting's shadows. Rembrandt's portraits manage a sort of magic. They're imbued with their own light. They are also remarkably poignant, full of emotion. Rembrandt's portrait of St. Matthew, for example, makes me smile. The gospel writer's hand pauses, hovering over a page of holy text, while an angel leans on the apostle's shoulder, whispering the next verse of scripture into his ear. Rembrandt's rendition of the, the prodigal son, which we have a copy of on the sixth floor, always gets me reaching for the tissues. As decrepit shoes fall off his feet, the lost young man collapses before his bearded father, a relieved-looking fellow who, who cradles the boy's shaved head, tender mercies intertwined with, with grateful joy. Hmm. But this week, I, I chose the Dutch master's rendition of a young lad standing at the knee of an older woman for our Mother's Day bulletin. And I have to tell you, in recent years, there's been an interpretive fight over this painting. Some say that this painting is Rembrandt's depiction of young Samuel with his mother, Hannah. But others argue that this painting shows the child, Timothy, with his grandmother, Lois. I'm coming down on the this is Timothy and Lois side of the debate, but, but it doesn't really matter for today's purposes. Either way, this painting is perfect for Mother's Day. The central figure, a mature woman, holds a copy of the good book in her lap, round of face with the family Bible on her knee and a walking stick ready to hand. This woman looks like my grandmother, Jenny. And this, I suppose, is another reason that I like Rembrandt. The Dutch people in his paintings look like one side of my family, Dutch immigrants to this land. Like so many artists, Rembrandt was an incarnational preacher. He, he took the people from his home, family members and neighbors in Leiden and Amsterdam, and wove them into the story of faith. Today, if you, if you walk around the halls of Fifth Avenue Church and study our art, you will see people of many different backgrounds and ethnicities woven into God's story by artists like Laura James, John August Swanson, and Ha Chi. You will see God depicted in different ways, too. That's how it should be. This is how a diverse community shares the faith, stitching all of God's children into sacred story. End of mini-sermon number two. Will you answer the catechism's questions a second time? Who are you? What does it mean to be a child of God? 
So why do artists like Laura James, Hutchie, and Rembrandt paint us into the stories of faith? Why do people like Timothy's grandmother Lois and my grandmother Jenny share their faith with us? In recent years, prominent atheists like scientist Richard Dawkins and comedian Ricky Gervais have suggested that we do this, we pass the faith along for all the wrong reasons. They accuse us of being superstitious and lazy, foolhardy and childish. And basically, they, they say that we are unwilling to face a brutal truth. There's no God out there guiding the cosmos to some sort of happy conclusion. I don't want to pick a fight with these critics this morning. I really don't. In many ways, they are right. There's a lot of superstition and foolishness running around today masquerading as faith. I'm happy to concede this point to contemporary atheists. You've got us there. But in turn, I want to offer two quick and I hope clarifying points for today's atheists to consider. First, when someone tells me I don't believe in a God who hates gays or who asks that I reject science or who ignores human suffering, I straight up nod in agreement. In my experience, most people of faith don't believe in that God either. Second, faith is not a series of propositions. It's not a set of outlandish facts that you must swallow in order to be saved. Faith is more like a book of poetry. Faith, faith's songs and stories and rituals wash over and through a person. They change how we see. And yes, along the way, faith asks that we examine ourselves. It is, we believe, a good thing to confess our mistakes and our meanness and to commit ourselves again and again and again, Sunday after Sunday, to embracing new life. And then, once we've done that, Faith calls us to put love your neighbor into practice. It dares believe that what is broken in the world is redeemable. It listens and sympathizes and seeks partners in the healing of the world. Faith does this by inviting us into, by weaving us into a saga that is old and mysterious and beautiful and hopeful. All of this is to say, I don't think my grandmother passed along her faith or that Lois read the ancient stories to little Timothy because these women were lazy or childish or in a state of denial about how brutal this world can be. Quite the contrary. I think these women offered these stories because they realized the world is a very harsh place and because they knew 
that in times of crisis, in moments when our self-righteous batteries run dry, we would need something sturdy and true. So we leaned against their knees and listened as they gifted us with something precious. They told us tales of a holy one who runs to embrace us even and perhaps especially when our shoes are falling apart and all seems lost. End of mini-sermon number three. <laughs> Will you say the catechism with me? Who are you? What does it mean to be a child of God? I'm, I'm grateful to my mother and my grandmother for passing along their faith, and I'm confident that they did it as an act of love. I want to celebrate their actions, to honor them. A few years ago, I was looking with wide eyes at the Facebook page of a person who had applied for a job here at the church, where to the wise, 70% of prospective employers consult job applicants' social media profiles during the interview process, and I was simply doing a bit of due diligence for the church. It happened to be in the week leading up to Mother's Day, and I was somewhat surprised to discover at the top of this candidate's page that they had written F Mother's Day. <laughs> well, except they used the full-blown F-bomb to convey their lack of appreciation for today. Now, I understand why people find today difficult. You might be missing a beloved mother who has, as the Salvation Army puts it, passed on to glory. Or you might feel like today puts a cultural and social expectations on women that you do not want to embrace. You might want to be a mother and find the day to be a downer because it celebrates something you have not realized. You might have had or still have a troubling relationship with your mother. There are plenty of reasons why Mother's Day can be challenging. Still, I struggled with our candidate's social media post, and, and candidly, it wasn't the all-caps use of profanity that really bothered me. It was the author's insistence that Mother's Day needed to be blown up because it made some people feel bad. In other words, rather than do research into the interesting history of the day, which is actually totally fascinating. Mother's Day was the culmination of a post-Civil War women's movement in this country, a movement focused on peace and care for the vulnerable. Rather than simply acknowledge that Mother's Day is complicated for some people, this author decided to go all in and to yuck other people's yum, she declared the day irredeemable. A good chunk of social media 
out there today suggests that our raw feelings are truths the world needs to hear. Maybe. Maybe the world needs all this unfiltered anger. Maybe the only moral compass we have left is what churns in our gut. But our faith, of course, <laughs> the faith shared in love by Lois and Jenny and countless other saints, suggests otherwise. Our faith urges humility. It advises that we take a sacred pause, that we examine our passions before acting on them, and that we remember that rage is a dangerous advisor. Faith encourages us to care for and about each other, even our enemies, as we search for the truth. The sort of truth etched in the catechism. Will you say it one more time with me? Who are you? What does it mean to be a child of God? Can words like these, repeated over and over, change the world, heal our wounds, stop our squabbles, and help us join together to face society's critically important problems? That seems like a tall order for such a small catechism. Still, as Reverend Sarah Speed likes to say, it's a start. It's the first step toward answering God's call. Be salt, Jesus instructed the disciples. Flavor the world with kindness and acts of justice and mercy. See if that doesn't change things. Tell the stories of the faith and see if they don't take root in people's hearts, transforming the way that they see and act. A couple of months ago, Tom Long, who will grace this pulpit in exactly two weeks, directed my attention to a poem by Stephen Dunn entitled At the Smithville Methodist Church. The poem is reprinted in the center of your bulletin today. Dunn explains that he wrote this poem after sending his eight-year-old daughter off to vacation Bible school. His daughter loved the experience, but her excitement about it all prompted the poet to, to contemplate, to wrestle with his own reactions. The poem begins like this. It was supposed to be arts and crafts for a week, but when she came home with the Jesus saves button, we knew what art was up, what ancient craft. She liked her little friends. She liked the songs they sang when they weren't twisting and folding paper into dolls. Well, what could be so bad? Jesus had been a good man and putting faith in good men was what we had to do to stay this side of cynicism. 
that other sadness. Okay, we said, one week. (laughs) But when she came home singing, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so, it was time to talk. (laughs) Could we say, Jesus doesn't love you? Could I tell her the Bible's a great book certain people use to make you feel bad? We sent her back without a word. It had been so long since we believed, so long since we needed Jesus as our nemesis and friend, that we thought he was sufficiently dead. The poem goes on to say, On parents' night, there were arts and crafts all spread out like appetizers. Then we took our seats in the church, and the children sang a song about the ark and hallelujah, and one in which they had to jump up and down for Jesus. I can't remember ever feeling so uncertain about what's comic, what's serious. I love this poem. It speaks to the cynicism of our age. It names all the typical worries that people voice about religion. And as it does, an honest struggle emerges in the child's parents. What is comical about faith? What is serious? And contemplating this, the poet identifies a quiet but deep longing for God in the recesses of his heart, a yearning not for the petty deities he has previously and with good reason rejected, but for a life-changing encounter, a a Jesus worth jumping up and down about, a God worth standing up for. God loves us, my friends. Therefore, We share our faith. God loves us, therefore, go from this place to share the faith. Share it by having courage, holding fast to what is good, not returning evil for evil, strengthening the faint-hearted, supporting the weak, helping the suffering, honoring all people loving and serving the Lord. Amen.